kitty just meow. Where is he? He's outside the door. Oh. Kitty. Come on. Welcome back to True Crime Trine. It's a podcast where the planets align. Three friends chat about true crime, astrology, and any other weird bullshit that can fit into this podcast. We are your hosts, Hannah. Sarah. And Meredith. Welcome to episode 47. Woo! And eight and nine. <laughs> and I, this is a, going to be a very special episode. To celebrate us almost being a year, I wrote <laughs> the biggest boy I've ever written in my life. I should have written my dissertation. <laughs> Fuck. I was like, I figured I wrote all of this. I can uh, apply for a job tomorrow. If I can do all this, whatever. So, yeah. do I have any housekeeping to take care of? No housekeeping. Sorry about the deep sigh. I'm just surprised by how large this episode is. It's definitely going to be a multi-parter. Oh, right. And here we go. Part one of question mark. (laughs) I decided that I wanted to jump on the TCD bandwagon and bring you a Pisces murder during Pisces season. And now I think I'm going to carry us out Pisces season on this one murder. And I uh, did not do very much astrology, so... As I say this story, Sarah, think about it. Does do you recognize any of these traits? And we can talk about it at the end. Great. Awesome. <laughs> Alrighty. So I think this was behind the scenes talk. We didn't actually record it, but I think the last time we recorded, we realized that there are a lot of heavy hitters who are Pisces. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. So today I am going to bring you the story of Eric Edgar Cook, who was a heavy hitter in his own right. But his crimes were committed in Australia, and as an American, I didn't know very much about him until I very quickly read two books in two days. Very quickly read two books in two days. One of them was like really short and kind of dumb, and then it, but it got me on to the net other book that I'll talk about at the very end, which was long and very detailed, so there you go. I figured, since we all are Americans, you might not have heard of him either. No, I haven't. I mean, the Cook last name is infamous on its own, <laughs> but it's a different Cook. Before Cook was caught, he was referred to in the press as the Nedlands Monster and the Nightcaller. So Nedlands is an affluent western suburb of Perth, so that one makes sense. But the Nightcaller kind of stumps me for a little bit because he never really actually telephoned his victims. But now I think it just means he would show up at their house at night, like that kind of caller. Okay. So, Eric Edgar Cook was born February 25th, 1931. In Victoria Park, a suburb of Perth in Western Australia. His mother, Christine Veronica Cook, loved him from the start and gave him her maiden name for a middle name. But his father, Vivian Thomas Cook, was another story. Vivian and Christine were both teenagers when Christine got pregnant, and they were quickly married because that would be, quote, better for the baby. (laughs) It was not. (laughs) 
As it seldom is. It doesn't normally work. So at 19, Vivian was already a violent alcoholic. Mm. It did help that Cook... I'm going to call him Cook instead of Eric because I normally do first names. But for this one, I think I'm going to do Cook. Okay. So it did help that Cook was born with a cleft palate, which only caused his father to consider him a freak. So when Cook was three months old, he underwent his first corrective surgery, but it wasn't super successful because this was the 1930s, still working on plastic surgery. Cook had a second reconstructive surgery when he was three and a half, and this one went better, but it did leave him with a noticeable facial scar, a chronic sinus trouble, and it affected his speech so that he spoke in a mumble. And so all these features made Cook a prime candidate for bullying from his schoolmates. Hmm. And Cook learned how to stand up for himself but he also learned to respond to insults with revenge and cruelty but not that i can really blame him at this point in his life everyone's being an ass to him besides his mom yeah i mean when your your own family isn't even treating you right that's yeah yes and kids are mean (sighs) yeah so mean and they're just like let's do all these noticeable deformities i guess that mm-hmm. kids can pick at. Yeah, like he had any choice in that matter. He was going to get made fun of. There's nothing yeah. to, like, prevent that. After Cook, Vivian and Christine had two more children, two daughters, but it seemed like Vivian focused most of his violence and rage on his son and on his wife. Oh, wife beater. Mm-hmm. Yay. Vivian did keep a job, but his wages went to supplying his drinking habit, not to supporting his family. Fucking hmm. winner. Of course. Kind of like Sig. From, yep. uh, yeah, Tin that Diane. episode. Mm-hmm. So Christine was forced to both care for her three children while working enough to earn money to support them and try to manage her husband and keep him from abusing his own kids. Jeez. Christine worked at the Como Hotel and would often spend the night in the staff room to avoid going home, and she usually brought Cook with her on those nights so they had a place to sleep away from his father. Yeah. And then Cook spent the rest of his time trying to avoid being at home, so he would wander the neighborhood and commit petty thefts, which were known in Australia at the time as tea and sugar thieves. Oh, That's so cute. But not. (laughs) But it's a bad side of things to come, but it's very cute to begin with. It's almost like when you, like, knock on your neighbor's door, right, to get a cup of sugar to finish baking a cake or something. I I know. Sugar thieves. So Cook was expelled from his first primary school for stealing money from the purse of one of his teachers when he was six years old. So oh, six. Six. Not, not keys. keys. <laughs> Just straight up money. Just money. He, he doesn't want the power. He wants the money. Doesn't want your secrets or your power. <laughs> he does want the power. We'll get to that later. Okay. He was eventually enrolled and then expelled from five different primary schools for behavioral issues. Ooh. Holy fuck. Ah. Which is probably like learning to stand up for himself against bullies, but. Being mm-hmm. bullied. He was a thief, obviously, from a young age, so yeah. he probably stole stuff from the teachers and students, too. Kind of by necessity. Yeah, I agree, but... Can you not? No one was no one was there to think of it that way. Sure. Uh, so when Cook was 14, he dropped out of school, which was the legal age to stop going to school in Australia, so it's less of a dropout and just a, I'm in done. In, like, what is this now, like, <laughs> the 50s? No, late 40s. Late 40s, yeah. Water, stop. Mid stop to late 40s. On. He got his first job as a delivery boy for Central Provision Stores, which I think is a grocery store. We will eventually go through all the jobs that Cook had and then lost, as well as all of the injuries that Cook sustained at his jobs, because Uh he was an ocean nightmare. It's (laughs) amazing, this man. I have a quick safety joke. Okay. 
and this is so stupid, but I love it. So in my safety meeting, when asked what steps should I take in the event of a fire, big fucking steps was not the correct answer. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So he did seem to care for his mother and would give her his weekly wages and she would give him back a few shillings for pocket money. Australia is still on shillings, pounds and whatnot. So I'm not doing any sort of pence. No idea. And I'm not doing any sort of inflation calculator because it's It's Australian shillings? I don't know. Okay. But he would supplement that through petty theft of money and food, as per usual. Uh, In an attempt to make some friends, Cook joined the Scarborough Junior Surf Life Saving Club. Hmm. But he completely torpedoed his attempts at friendship when he stole a watch and had it engraved to Cookie from the boys of SJLSC. So he engraved it to himself as if the boys gave it to him. I read the other way at first, like he gave it to the boys, which made more sense, but whatever. But he would Hmm. tell everyone that it had been given to him uh, from the club for good service, but quickly found out it was actually stolen and he had to give it back to the owner. Uh, He was also a fucking terrible lifeguard and twice had to be rescued himself when he blacked out in the surf. (laughs) So yeah, he was quickly dismissed from the club and definitely didn't get anything for good service. Oh, Lord. Try to get attention by performing daredevil acts, which he also wasn't good at. He once dived off a rock ledge into the Serpentine River, 50 feet below. Uh, It wasn't a good dive, and he staggered out of the water semi-conscious. And after four days of headaches and neck pain, he was admitted to the Royal Perth Hospital, which we will hear from a lot. Okay. Uh Uh-oh. X-rays showed that nothing was broken, but he stayed in the hospital for five days to recuperate. Concussion? Eh, they didn't say anything. Swelling? Well. Just like, we're going to keep an eye on you. Yeah, well, about a month later, he was in the hospital again because he had just randomly fallen unconscious for 45 minutes. Oh my god. (laughs) Which is a long fucking time to fall unconscious. Like, from a standing position, just fainted and stayed that way for 45 minutes? I don't know if he was standing, but he was just, like, unresponsive for 45 minutes when he was previously awake. Maybe he just needed a nap. (laughs) This is his body. He's like, we're napping now. (laughs) I want that disease. Narcolepsy? Narcolepsy. Narcolepsy. Yeah. I don't think you want that disease. (laughs) You wouldn't be able to drive. I'd be okay. Uh, It was suspected that he had a frontal lobe abscess or infection, and x-rays also showed a possible calcified blood clot under the lining of his brain, which could have been from that dive. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The doctors followed up with a craniotomy, which is where you remove part of the skull so you can peek peek at the brain, high brain. But also can help relieve pressure if that's also a problem. Mm -hmm. Yes. And he also had an encephalogram, which monitors the electrical activity of the brain. No abnormalities were found, and Cook was released from the hospital. Compared to what? Good question. <laughs> <laughs> While he was recuperating, he went to work on a farm where he was bit by a snake and brought right back to oh the RPH. God. Dude. <laughs> Holy fuck, man. It's an Australian snake, too. I know, so he could have died. It's not like a garter snake or something that's just hanging out. It's like a, a big deal, right? <laughs> what snakes do they have? Uh, yeah, too bad this isn't a two-page uh, script and he died and no one got hurt. That would have been great. That would have been <laughs> hero snaked corner. Well, so you, you figure like all of these accidents maybe might have prevented him from being bad if like one had done him in. Not even close to finished. Oh, Jesus. 
Uh, he then got a job with the Western Australian Government Railways as a hammer boy in the blacksmith section. He worked at this new job for two months, and then one night he tried to stop his drunken father from beating his mother. Mm. So his father and Sid hit, hit Cook so hard that his head smashed against a light switch, which fractured his skull. Ooh. Oh, fuck. Cook was hospitalized for three weeks, and it was nine more weeks before he could return to work. That's a lot of head injury and not a whole lot of time. Uh-huh. Yeah. He only lasted a month back at work before he was placed on workers' comp for a week after burning his face with steam and suffering second-degree burns. Buddy. Holy <sighs> fuck, man. Two months later, he was off on workers' comp for another three weeks. He seemed to be the type of person who just wanted to be noticed, and so it didn't really matter whether it was in a, ne- a positive or a negative way. So he annoyed his co-workers at the blacksmithery by throwing carbide into the water, which apparently makes like a really bad smell. I have no idea. And so what the blacksmith lost patience and tried to shove Cook's head into the water, but he only succeeded in hitting Cook's head on the side of the water bin, which knocked him unconscious for 10 minutes. Oh my god. All right, work accidents just continue. Oh, fuck. He'd been back at work for seven weeks before he had went back on workers' comp for a month because he had jammed his right hand and it had developed an abscess. Jesus. Does he have a disease where, like, he can't tell that he's injuring himself? I don't think so. Okay. Because, like, this is a lot of accidents to, like, a silly degree. He went back to work for a month and then was back on workers' comp for a week for jamming the thumb of his left hand. Holy fuck. Or he just really hates working and he likes someone at the hospital. Maybe. So perhaps during this last stint on workers' comp, Cook decided that blacksmithing just wasn't for him. And on September 24th, 1948, he joined the army instead. Uh, The structure and order of the army was actually really good for him. And he really wanted to succeed, even after being told that his speech impediment would prevent him from rising up in the ranks. Just kind of a bummer. Mm. But on the rifle range, he learned quickly and proved to be a very good shot. At this point, Cook was 17 years old and had started to escalate from petty tea and sugar thefts to serious break-ins. Uh-oh. Great. In one of his first major robberies on October 15th, 1948, he stole a flashlight and a small travel clock. He also just liked to do weird shit when inside other people's homes. This one that he stole the clock from, he also opened several bottles of wine and poured them all over the clothes. Uh, (laughs) No, you drink the wine. Nope. (laughs) The owner reported the break-in and the police found fingerprints on the empty wine bottles, but there were no matching fingerprints on file yet. Yet. He continued breaking into houses and started setting small fires and doing other odd things besides just stealing things. He loved to slash clothing and bedding with a knife. And at one time, he fed chocolate to a goldfish. Oh, I don't think it works the same way it does for dogs. (laughs) No, I think the water just got chocolate. Ew. On that note, another time he shit into a a doll's bed. What? I assume like- He just like laid a turd in a doll bed. Doll's bed? Why? We will just keep asking this question. Because of all the head injuries, Meredith. I know, but still, like, when does, when you're like, hmm, I'm gonna take a shit in that doll's bed. That's, I've never crossed my mind, so I can't really say. I'm just picturing a turd, like, laying on the pillow and then, like, covered up partially by the blanket, like, there you go, sweet dreams. Well, he will stage some scenes later. <laughs> What's the South Park poop? Uh, Mr. Hanky? Mr. Hanky. Yeah. Yes. The Christmas poo. <laughs> <laughs> 
I guess that he kept his job with the Western Australian Government Railways even after he enlisted in the Army, because on January 19th, 1949, the railway transferred him from the blacksmith department to the East Perth Locomotive Shed as a cleaner. On his very first day at his new job, he tripped and fell into an engine pit, badly injuring his back. Oh my god. <laughs> and Cook was back at his home away from home, the Royal Perth Hospital, where a neuros- neurosurgeon found that Cook's back wasn't fractured, but he did have an abdominal injury that needed further treatment, so Cook was put back on sick leave and workers' comp. Jesus. Do they have, like, Canada and other countries, like, universal health care? I don't know. This was also the 40s. Okay. I don't know how healthcare even worked in America in the 40s. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, since he wasn't working, uh, Cook had even more time to break into houses and set more fires. Oh, shit. On his 18th birthday, he set a fire that caused 400 pounds of damage, whatever that equates to. Okay. One week later, he finally slipped up and was caught inside a house by the homeowner. <laughs> Cook tried to get out of it by saying, I'm Cook from next door. I was drunk and lying outside. And when I went, got up, I went to go home, but I missed the door. Missed the door and opened yours instead. Oh, God. The homeowner wasn't buying it and punched him in the face. So another head injury. And then he fainted for another 45 minutes. So he was apprehended by the police on March 12th, 1949. Uh, And he still had the small travel clock from his first break-in on his person. And his fingerprints were matched to the ones collected at some of the scenes. So on May 24th, 1949, he appeared in criminal court and was convicted on two charges of stealing, seven of breaking and injuring, and four of arson. The arresting officer wrote a character report for the court and ended it by saying, quote, I consider that from a perusal of Cook's medical history and from my knowledge of his home life gained through inquiries made, that Cook can be classified as one of life's unfortunates. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Officer also mentioned that he thought Cook's accident proneness could be a sign of a hidden suicidal tendency, which I don't really know how to interpret. But I do think it's super interesting that Cook was the most fucking clumsy man I've ever heard of when he was at work. Mm -hmm. But he was able to be stealthy and smooth during the majority of his break-ins. So, who knows? Maybe he saw better at night, like possums. Uh, oh, God, <laughs> he's a pot. No, I love possums. Those are marsupials, which are found in Australia. Mm-hmm. Cook was also examined by the Inspector General of Mental Hospitals. And on May 24th, 1949, the Chief Justice sentenced Cook to three years in prison, but also accepted the Inspector General's recommendation to give him a chance to rehabilitate himself, saying, quote, After undergoing two or three months' confinement as an experience of punishment, he should be released on parole. So prison wasn't great, but the real punishment for Cook was being dismissed from the Army, as there were rules saying that if you have a criminal conviction, you can't be in the Army. Which is probably still a thing. Cook was released on parole after three months in prison. The deputy comptroller general of prisons thought that it was desirable to, quote, allow the lad to leave the prison before any possible contamination by hardened criminals took place, (laughs) while handing him to the jurisdiction and supervision of some responsible authority. The parole board agreed and said that, quote, he was not of criminal habits, but had committed the acts which led to his incarceration out of a foolish desire for notoriety, which he had hoped would gain him friendships. The taste of imprisonment has been quite enough for him, and the board believes he will honestly endeavor to overcome his past failings. 
So, Cook was released from prison after a short observation period at Heathcote Reception Hospital, which was a mental institution. He passed his observation and was released back into public life with the caveat that he had to meet with the parole officer regularly until his parole was finished. Uh, his mother got him a job with her at Playstow's, which I think was a candy factory. Oh, cute. Super cute. He poured molten hot, molten hot sugar all over his face. <laughs> He did Or tripped into the vat. Okay. Or brought chocolate home for the fish. Oh. Oh, poor fish. He also had an active social life for the first time in his life, as the Reverend George Jenkins had volunteered to help rehabilitate Cook by bringing him into the fold of the South Perth Methodist Church. These seem like very nice, somewhat naive church people who did actually follow the Christian principle of welcoming and accepting people who were different from them. Imagine that. I know. (laughs) And you know what? He fucking played them, so I don't know what to learn here. Oh. What is the lesson? (laughs) What is the lesson, guys? The youth group went out of their way to include Cook in their activities, and Cook enjoyed being with the Methodists so much that he also went to Tuesday tea and Bible study at the Central Methodist Mission and joined the Nedlands Methodist Church congregation. Can't get enough of these Methodists. (laughs) They're not Baptists. Time out. I think the state flower of Western Australia is like kangaroo paw or something. Oh, see, I assumed it was the golden waddle. That was for Australia as a whole. Okay. As a whole. Whole. All right. He remained on the accident train as well. He started having headaches and fading spells within weeks of being released from prison that had been caused by being hit in the cheek with a rifle butt just before he went to jail. He went back to the Royal Perth Hospital and was examined, but they found no new fractures or other abnormalities. Uh, His next trip to RPH happened after he was stung by a stingray. So Australian. Like Steve. And the stingray took the good one. He could have taken this guy. He also went to the hospital for treatment of various ailments, such as a boil on his neck and an infected lump, but it didn't say where the lump was. Probably wasn't appropriate at the time. I'm going to go groin. Uh, He also had an operation to remove all of his teeth and wore dentures for the rest of his life. Oh, buddy. And I have no fucking idea why. Wait, how old was he at this time? 20. Oh my god. Uh, In June 1951, he left his job at the chocolate factory and started work as an orderly at a tuberculosis sanitarium. He started nursing training, but two weeks into that, he was rushed back to RPH for an emergency appendectomy and a week-long hospital stay. Oh my Jesus. Wow. I think I might be towards the end of his work accidents, but that literally was like two pages of my script. Fucking ridiculous, though. Uh, His probation ended in August 1951, and he moved to Melbourne and enlisted in the army there, hoping that no one would find out that he'd already been discharged from the army in Perth due to his criminal conviction. Uh, He lasted 14 weeks, got to do some more basic training before he was released. Uh, So there was nothing for him in Melbourne, so Cook went back to Perth, where he was arrested just before his 22nd birthday for breaking and entering with intent. So on February 19th, 1953, he had broken into the home of one of the South Perth Methodist Church congregants and had stolen a money box. Uh Uh-oh. He was caught through his fingerprints, which were now on file from the original arrest. Cool. The Methodist and the police board basically gave him a slap on the wrist and a second chance, placing him on a 50 pounds good behavior bond. So he didn't even go to jail. (laughs) And the Methodists are like, pat, pat, that's fine. Cook got a job as a truck driver 
honestly should not be allowed to drive a car. No. Is what I'm just realizing. But, uh, well, he did. And it was there in June 1953 when he met Sally Lavin, who was a waitress in the staff canteen. A cook could be charming in the beginning, and Sally fell in love with this kind and polite clumsy boy. Clumsy, clumsy boy. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Cook and Sally were married on November 16th, 1953, about four months after they met, dot, dot, dot. Yeah. They had their first son on May 11th, 1954, so that might have been why they got married in November. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> and a second son came around a year later. I mean, he is accident prone, so, you know, whoops. Whoops. <laughs> <laughs> My dick still works. I didn't know that. <laughs> of all things uh, one thing is not broken god damn it uh, Cook did like the idea of love and security of a family life but he wasn't very good at being a father or a husband no shit well to be fair he did have a terrible role model but it yeah. also seems like he didn't try for very long either great by two years into his marriage Cook already had eyes for other women Ugh. any women all the women all the women all of them <laughs> Two months after his second son was born, he decided he wanted to go to a hockey tournament that a girl he had a crush on was playing in. Hmm. So he stole a car for the two-hour drive, but didn't make it to the tournament. Instead, he crashed the car and was taken to a new hospital, the Yarloop District Hospital, for emergency treatment of a broken sternum and face and knee injuries. Holy shit. The property damage to the car ran up to 400 pounds, and Cook was charged with assuming control of a motor vehicle. The authorities had Cook examined by a psychiatrist who reported that Cook was definitely unreliable. You think? (laughs) Finally, he said, quote, he was given a chance to rehabilitate himself and a further chance in 1952. He's very plausible in playing as much as possible on sympathy for his disability. I don't think this is any ground for psychiatric intervention as regards to the present charge. The Methodists continued to support him and got him a lawyer. (laughs) Okay. But in September 1955, Cook was jailed for two years with hard labor for stealing a car. And Justice Virtue, who has the best fucking name for a judge I've ever heard, yep. said that, quote, he was not disposed to leniency given Cook's record and his squandering of previous chances when he had been extremely leniently dealt with. Fair enough, Virtue. Okay. The shine on her husband had definitely come off for Sally, but when a justice of the peace offered to help her annul her marriage, she declined. She was miserable. Her husband was displaying his violent traits and was now in prison, Mm -hmm. Uh, but she felt that she couldn't desert her husband when he was down, and she believed that he could still change. She hoped Mm. things would be better when Cook was released. Girl. Mm -mm. It was not. Cook was released two months early, thanks to his tenure as an exemplary inmate, and a number of church associates were prepared to help with his rehabilitation again. Jesus. I mean, I get that people have faith, but how much faith can you have in in one person like this? It's like not a joke per se, but it's like someone's on top of the roof and it's flooding and a boat comes. And they won't get mm-hmm. in because God will save them. And a helicopter comes and they won't get in because God will save oh, them. Oh, yeah. And then God's like, what the fuck, man? I sent I'm trying you to a save you. And a helicopter. <laughs> like, get on it. Uh, one random Methodist even went before the Minister of Justice and said, quote, While the wife has been treated rather badly, in the interest of her family, she is resolved to make a new start and to assist in a practical way her husband upon his release. This fucking worked. And I not a fan of the Methodists. Mm-mm. You, you care a lot about this asshole, but not his wife? Come on. Yeah. Yeah, it's not That's good. bullshit. 
Alrighty, so Sally had twins sometime in the two years after Cook was released from prison. So now we're up to four kids? They now had four children, but Cook didn't seem to think it was his responsibility to actually parent them. Uh, He went out every Friday and Saturday night and wouldn't arrive home until the very early hours of the morning. And Sally was not allowed to ask any questions. Cook spent these evenings living the single life. Really fucking loved bowling and going to pubs and movies. And he also had little girlfriends that he would meet up with. And when he was done with the socially acceptable fun for the night, he would shift to his night prowling mode. Ooh. And he had learned his lesson and now wore women's gloves when he broke into houses. Why women's? No idea. But he, he was very loyal to the woman's glove. Okay. They're softer. <laughs> or maybe he had really dainty hands. Yeah. <laughs> if anything, I think he had really scarred hands from all the work accidents. So, let's get into the reign of terror that the Nedlands monster had over Perth during the years of 1958 through 1963. Uh, There's going to be a lot of victims, but I want to make sure that they are presented as more than just victims. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, so I hope to respect these people and their family, who, as Dennis McCloyd said, quote, still live in despair at the injustice of the situation. Cook stole the life of my sister, and even now, he owns her identity in the sense that she's remembered in the public mind as his victim and his possession. Oh. It's, it's very, very true. It's very true and very, very bad. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. So Jan and Nell Schneider immigrated to Australia from the Netherlands in 1955 as the country was still trying to recover from World War II and the Nazi occupation. Both Jan and Nell had survived the hunger winter of 1944 through 45, when the Nazis had cut off the western cities from the farmland, and more than 16,000 people starved to death in the cities. And I went on a canal tour in Amsterdam and learned all about it. Very (laughs) interesting. Jan was a fine art technician who had trained at the Amsterdam Museum, and had been the technical assistant to the professor of art at Leiden University. So, big deal. Nell Mm -hmm. had a diploma in pipe organ, which I didn't know was a diploma you could get, but... Wow. Okay. Like the pipe organ. A a church organ. And she was also an experienced bilingual office clerk. Okay. However, like many immigrants, they could not get jobs in their new country that fit their level of expertise, and so Jan was forced to do manual labor before he found a stable job as a spray painter, and Nell was unable to get a job, so she stayed at home with her two young children. And both were very active in their local Dutch Reformed Church, where now at least played the pipe organ. On September 12, 1958, Cook was out on his usual criminal prowl. Perth was still relatively innocent and pretty small at this time, and most residents would just leave car keys in their ignition when they went home for the night. Oh my god. Yes. <laughs> Here, have this car. This made it very easy for Cook to steal a car whenever he felt like it. Sure. And then he could expand the radius of his prowling now that he's not just on foot. This also meant that he was never in the same car twice when he committed his crimes, so it would be hard for the police to connect them. Right. And then in order to not alert the car owner, Cook would push the car down the driveway into the street before turning it on and driving away. So he wasn't that brain damaged. No. Then if he could think of that kind of stuff. Yeah. He wasn't dumb. Yeah, that's pretty crafty. Mm Mm-hmm. And he dropped out of school because of behavioral problems, but I think he would have been fine if he stayed in school. Like, he wasn't academically slow in any way. Okay. On this night, Cook had stolen Dick Cleek's, I just like this guy's name, (laughs) Ford console sedan, and was driving around in Hillview Terrence when he spotted Nell Schneider riding her bicycle home from a choir practice, like a good Dutch woman on a bicycle. Go, Nell, go. 
Cook stopped the car to watch her, and he was suddenly hit with an intense, almost irresistible urge to hurt someone. Oh, no. Nell Schneider, who was 26 at the time, was unfortunate to be the first person who came face to face with that urge. As Nell bicycled away on a deserted street, Cook made a split-second decision to run her off the road with his car. No. He sped towards her, hitting her bike, and tossing Nell into the air, who then crashed headfirst into the road. Oh, Oh, no. Cook sped away, Nell's bike still stuck in the grill of his car. Whoa. Fuck. Around 11.15 p.m., a family saw the car drive by, but assumed that it had just accidentally hit a bicycle that had been left in the road. So now lay on the road for about 45 minutes until a passing motorist noticed a busted up bicycle, which Cook must have taken off the grill at some point, which piqued his curiosity and he got out of his car in order to investigate the area. Mm -hmm. He found Nell about 200 yards away around the corner. So she was rushed to the Royal Perth Hospital. It's going to keep coming up. Oh, shit. And Jan had been at home, growing increasingly concerned as it grew later and later and his wife still wasn't home. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then he saw people milling about in the neighborhood at about 2 a.m. So he went out. He learned from the police that his wife had been a victim of a hit and run. Nell was in a deep coma, and at 7.30 a.m., her condition suddenly deteriorated, and it seemed very likely that she would die. But Nell had survived the hunger winter, and she was going to survive this, goddammit. But she probably didn't say goddammit, because she was very religious. But (laughs) go, Nell, go! After two weeks, Nell came out of her coma, and luckily Jan was by her bedside as she woke up. She survived. Nell's head wounds were extremely serious, though, and she floated in and out of a deep sleep and was unable to remember what happened. To be honest, she probably didn't even really see very much. Yeah. Yeah. She stayed in the hospital for another two weeks before she was released to solely recuperate at home. She did eventually recover, but she was never the same and had to live with chronic post-traumatic temporal lobe epilepsy for the rest of her life, which meant a lifetime of blackouts, seizures, and medication. My favorite, Dick Cleek, reported the theft of this car, and it was added to the list of 842 other cars that had been stolen that year, presumably by joyriders. Maybe don't keep your keys at the ignition. Right. Yeah, take them out. I wonder if the police, I mean, because you know how police are like, uh-huh, yeah, your your car got stolen. Uh, you dumb idiot. But, mm-hmm. like, it, with respect to the fact that this was involved in the hit and run. Oh, a lot of these were reported stolen before police even realized there was a hit and run. Oh, okay. okay. The police also said that the hit and run on Nell Schneider was the work of a joyrider, which I suppose is kind of correct. <sighs> yeah, a little bit. Not much joy if you're trying to do that to somebody. No, I don't know if Cook ever felt an ounce of joy. Mm-mm. Maybe when he shat in that doll's bed. <laughs> He's like, this is so funny. This little girl's going to be so mad. <laughs> Honestly, it is kind of funny. I know. I'm just like, what the fuck is that? But I'm it's... just picturing, though, like, you have to squat over the bed, the little tiny doll bed. Okay, yeah. I just watched a TikTok where I was like, I don't know why I'm watching this, but it was uh, someone's dog, and there was a picture of Putin, and the dog was slowly pooping onto the picture of Putin, but you could totally see his butthole expand and contract. I was like, <laughs> why am I watching this? But it was funny. <laughs> because it satiates the need Fuck for Putin. Putin to be pooed on. Yeah. yeah. So, two and a half months later... Cook felt confident and above the law since nothing had come out of running down Nell Schneider, so he went out on the prowl again. 
On November 25th, 1958, Cook broke into a house through the slatted doors of the Sleep Out, which I think is like an enclosed porch where people sleep in yeah. the summer in order to catch a breeze. I've never heard it called mm. a Sleep Out, but it's Australia. There's some terms in mm-hmm. here. There was a 15-year-old girl asleep on a bed in the sleepout. Second to stealing, mm. Cook really liked watching young girls and couples in their bedroom. Oh, So he's a peeper, too? Oh, such a Ugh. peeper. Ugh. He was there to steal, though, so he tore his eyes away and snooped around the house. But as he was leaving the house, the back door slipped out of his hand and made a noise, which woke up the sleeping teenager. Cook grabbed whatever was handy, hit her over the head with it, and ran out and escaped down the road. Oh. Lucy and Ern McLeod were woken up in the middle of the night by the sound of their daughter, Molly, staggering about in their bedroom. She was mumbling and trying to tell her parents what happened, but the words wouldn't come out. Yeah, she'd just been assaulted. And this was especially frightening, as Molly was normally extremely eloquent, and she had just received a perfect score in an art of speech competition. Now, the newspaper had even ran an article about her win with the headline, When Molly Talks, She's a Winner. And now, all she could get out was gibberish. He probably hit her, like, square in the broken speech center. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Like, right above your left ear. Molly passed out in her parents' bedroom, and her father put her back into her bed, where he stayed up and watched over her through the night as her mother prayed over her. (gasps) No hospital, though, huh? Not yet. By morning, Molly's power of speech were starting to return. And she was able to tell her parents that she had been hit on the head. Now her head really fucking hurt. Yeah. She was taken to her family doctor. He was just as confused as the McLeod family. But it was quite clear that she was concussed. And he, he ordered six weeks bed rest. And x-rays showed a small Y-shaped hairline fracture on her left temple. Okay. Yeah, you see that? There was nothing to explain what happened to Molly. Cook had not actually taken anything from the house, so nothing was out of place, and it seemed like the only explanation could be a sudden illness or an accident. Wait, so she couldn't articulate that someone had assaulted her? Uh Uh-uh. She just was just Just that her head hurt. Mm -hmm. Oh, fuck. Mm. And they finally decided that Molly must have had a violent nightmare and fell out of bed, hitting her head on the corner of a piece of furniture or on the floor. So that's what they thought happened to Molly for a long time. Poor Molly. Yeah. That's... Uh, so for Christmas 1958, Cook spent it at home with his family, play acting as a good father. But he couldn't even last one day a year, like fucking well, Santa Claus. Yeah. I was gonna say he okay. left, maybe got two years, but on December 27th, he was on the prowl again. So 29-year-old Kathleen Kathy Mavis Bellis and her husband Phil had a similar family-oriented Christmas. Kathy had easily fit in with Phil's close family in Perth. So she had the great support system, which was really lucky because all of her family lived in Melbourne. Google Australia and you'll see that Perth is the only fucking thing on the west side of Australia. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like there's not a goddamn thing it looks out isolated. there. It's so isolated. Kathy got especially close to Phil's sister, Audrey, and even did some part-time work with her at E.G. Patman's, which was a tea room. So on December 27th, the Bellas family had spent a relaxing day at the beach. But that evening, they were surprised by Eric Patman, who was the owner of the tea room, knocking on their door. Kathy usually works Sunday mornings, but Eric had stopped by to ask if she could help out on the evening shift as they were a man down. Kathy was always ready to help, quickly cleaned up, and went to the tea room with Eric Patman. Phil had taken their kids to the drive-in, and he stopped by the tea room at about 9.30 that night when the movie was over to see if Kathy could leave early. The tea room was absolutely hopping, though, so Phil went home and put the boys to bed. At 11 p.m., Phil did his usual routine, where he drove to the bus stop to wait for Kathy so he could drive her the rest of the way home. 
That's sweet. It's super sweet. But the bus was extremely late, though, and Phil had left his two young children sleeping at home, so he didn't want to wait around the bus stop forever, and he went back home. (sighs) In the city, Kathy's bus was late due to a problem with a flat tire, but she finally reached her stop. She had halfway expected Phil to be there with his van, but the bus stop was deserted, so she pulled a flashlight out of her purse and prepared to walk the two blocks home, which at this time had no streetlights, so she was surrounded by darkness with just the narrow beam of the flashlight to guide her. There's almost oh, that's gonna be almost no streetlights in this story. That's creepy. And then you consider the fact of like all the critters that are in Australia. Oh my god. Like, oh yeah. Yeah. There's just like a giant huntsman following you home. Oh my god. The spiders are awesome. Uh-uh. Nah. <laughs> no. nah. Um, as she was walking, she heard the sound of a car a little way behind her, and she soon knew it was Phil. So she turned around and waved her flashlight toward the noise. No. Soon realized it wasn't Phil's van. She moved to the edge of the road to let the car pass and kept moving. But as she walked, she heard the car rev its engines and speed up as it was headed towards her down the road. Kathy moved further off the road and walked faster, feeling extremely unsettled. when she was Mm -hmm. suddenly hit by the car, which threw her over 60 feet. Oh my god. Kathy slipped in and out of consciousness while she lay extremely injured at the side of the road. Not having a very firm grasp on this particular moment, Kathy was never sure if this next thing actually happened, but she remembered the driver of the car coming to stand over her, and she had begged the man, don't leave me or I'll die. The man laughed, went to his car, and sped away. Jesus. Nearby, the Roberts were sitting in their kitchen and having a cup of tea when they suddenly heard a terrible sound. Tea at night? Yeah. It's Australia. They're backwards. (laughs) Upside down, people. (laughs) Maybe it's sleepy chamomile. Ah, yes. At first, Lee thought it was their pet cat who was in some kind of trouble, make terrible noises, but her husband- Just yowling. But her husband recognized it as the sound of a woman. They walked along the road to investigate, thinking that maybe a woman was being beaten somewhere. Oh. But they were not expecting to come across a body lying on the side of the road, the right leg stuck out at an impossible angle, blood oozing out of the oh. mouth, and an obviously broken pelvis. Oh my god. She seemed to be dead, but they called an ambulance anyway. The sound had also alerted another neighbor who recognized the body as Kathy Bellis and ran to tell her husband, Your wife's been killed down the road. <gasps> Luckily, Kathy wasn't dead. Oh, thank God. Or else how would she have told this story? Whatever, guys. Uh, Yeah. Sorry. I was just like, she has to be alive because we at least hear this part of the story from her. So she has a little bit longer to (laughs) live. Or she at least a little bit longer. I'm two in. I didn't catch on. (laughs) She briefly regained consciousness while waiting for the ambulance to arrive, which instantly threw her into excruciating pain. And she was only able to tell her rescuers to not move her legs before she fell back into unconsciousness. Phil raced to the hospital where he was relieved to find that Kathy was actually still alive and in surgery and that he could see her in the morning. Uh, When Kathy woke up that morning, she found herself in a hospital bed with metal embedded in her lacerated face, badly broken pelvis, two breaks in her leg, a shattered knee, a fracture in the base of her spine, and a fracture at the top of her skull. Oh, Jesus. She was also haunted by the memory slash maybe dream of a man standing over her and laughing while she begged for help. Yeah. Obviously, she had a very long convalescence and was in the out of the hospital for at least a year for orthopedic surgeries and physical therapy. But she tried not to dwell on the accident as best she could because she didn't think it would do any good. As a dweller myself, 
I don't understand, but I think she's right. You gotta kind of move on. She kept telling herself that she was just in the wrong place at the wrong time, and she turned out to be correct about that. (sighs) Yeah. Phil went and looked at the scene of the accident in the light of day. I have no idea what this means, but it's delightfully Australian. And the book said, quote, The street was strewn with Kathy's bits for chooks. What? I have no idea. Bits for chooks? Bits for chooks. Anywho, fun fun (laughs) Australian uh, digression. Uh, Phil could also very clearly see the tire tracks that veered way off the road, so it was obvious to Phil that this was a deliberate hit and run. It took a bit longer for the police to come to this conclusion. At first, Phil was the main suspect, which, yeah. Yeah. Uh, When a stolen car was found the next day, everyone was finally on the same page. Kathy Bellis had deliberately been run down by a car for an unknown reason. On January 25th, 1959, Cook's fifth child was born. Four days later, he visited his wife and new son in the hospital, and then went on a celebratory prowl. He came across no. a bike with a skin diver's weight belt hanging over the handlebars, and he snatched the 8-inch diver's knife before he continued skulking around, mostly being a peeping tom for the beginning of the night. At the same time, 33-year-old Panina Berkman was asleep in her South Perth home. She had been born Patricia Benico Griggs in Melbourne, but had converted to Judaism and took on a more Jewish version of her name when she had married Gertzen Gary Berkman, who was a Jewish immigrant from Poland. Yeah. The couple had one child, but the marriage only lasted four years before they separated in 1953 and then divorced in 1955. And following the divorce, Panina moved to Perth from Victoria with her eight-year-old son in order to start over with a completely fresh slate. Okay. That makes total sense. Although I guess her her son never gets to see his father very often, but... She was second in charge of perfumery and the cosmetic section of the David Jones department store, and she was known as a very glamorous woman. She had also began dating Fotis Hontas, a popular radio personality. So on Jen... These names. I know. Yeah. <laughs> Lots of immigrants in Australia is what this is saying. Yeah. So on January 25th, Fotis had picked Panina up from work and drove her home where they had dinner together. A chook is oh chicken. Ew. Oh. It's slang for chicken. Is that like flesh on the road? Ooh. Oh, God. I don't like that at oh, all. Oh, that's so much better in Australian. <sighs> yeah. Yikes. Okay. Well, maybe they had chook for dinner. Uh, but sorry. <laughs> <laughs> that's not what I was expecting at all. <laughs> Alrighty. Around 8 p.m., Fotis went to his house for a while before returning to Panina's at 10 p.m. The couple shared a bottle of beer and made love. I don't know how else to say it. <laughs> sure. I just feel gross saying made love, but that's what it said in the book. Made love. Okay. And I might feel... They fucked. They might not have fucked. I don't know. Maybe they made love. I mean... Yeah. <laughs> Who knows? Fotis left home at midnight, leaving Panina sleeping naked and peacefully. Panina was suddenly awoken in the middle of the night, and she saw the outline of a man looking down on her as she slept. Obviously, she panicked, and so did Cook, because he was worried that she might see his face, which was recognizable from the scars from the cleft palate surgeries. Oh. He remembered that he had enjoyed hitting that teenager over the head a few months ago, and this time, he had a knife, which he quickly pulled from his belt and stabbed Panina. No. She was a real fighter, kicking and scratching and clawing at his face. And this was Cook's first taste of hand-to-hand fighting, and he didn't particularly like it, so he fought back harder. He was stronger, and in the end, Cook was able to stab her in the chest, and Panina quickly died. Cook ran home, high on his adventures that night, somewhere along the way disposing of the knife in a drain at the corner of the road. (sighs) 
Fotis drove by Panita's house on his way to work the following morning and saw that her window was open and the door was ajar. This was weird as she always locked up before going to work, so he went in to investigate. He found Panina's naked body lying in a pool of blood in the lounge room by the sliding glass doors. Mm. It looked as though she had tried to make it out the door before she succumbed to her injuries. Mm. This murder absolutely shocked Perth, but also scandalized them a bit that the victim was a divorced woman who had sex with a new boyfriend and slept in the nude. Very salacious. Oh, yeah, that day and age. Fotis was considered the primary suspect, but neighbors had heard his footsteps that night and were able to confirm his story with the times that he had left her place and then returned and left again. Panina's eight-year-old son testified that he had never seen Fotis with a knife. Fotis was cleared by the police, but the public still looked at him with suspicion, so he moved back to his native Greece. Sure. There was a huge police investigation, and there was some biological evidence, as blood was found under Panina's fingernails, and the neighbors also were able to testify about noises that they had heard in the middle of the night. However, Panina's Berkman's murder remained unsolved. Cook brought his wife home from the hospital three days later, and Sally could see that he was not himself. He stopped taking care of himself and moped around for about a week, sitting on the front stoop being worried and moody. He was also obviously physically injured and had the deep scratches on his face and mouth became infected and took a long time to heal. He told his wife that the injuries had come when he was playing with their eldest son, who happened to be mentally disabled, and I bet Cook had some strong feelings about that, but... He never expressed them. Anyway, Sally had learned long ago that she wasn't to ask questions. I need more beer. Yeah. So one of the Australian slang for sex is root. Oh, I heard that. A root rat is a woman that just fucks around a lot. Yeah. Oh my gosh. These slangs are crazy. I know. Let me pour this bitch. What was the thing that Chris said? I'm not here to fuck fuck spiders. spiders. (laughs) Oh, fuck spiders. (laughs) It's so funny. And then like two days later on one of the ugly tattoo instagrams i follow there was a whole tattoo that said i'm not here to fuck spiders and had spiders all over it not even here to like fuck with spiders just not even i'm not here to fuck spiders yep <sighs> it's like i'm sure the spiders don't want that either spiders like please <laughs> leave me alone please no <laughs> all right a tosser is someone who masturbates a lot tosser uh, i'm yeah. gonna have another slang Tossing term for you later but maybe we'll see if you get to it first okay Oh, a gobby. What? Gobby is a blowjob. Ew. Ew. That sounds like you take, ah, he takes his fucking dentures out and just gobs on that knob. Oh, no. Ew. Am I Australian yet? (laughs) By the way, I'm on page 11 and I was going to go to about page 18 for the first part. Okay. Okay. All right. So that was January. It was relatively quiet for a while and stayed that way until August 8th, 1959. Alex Doncon was a 17 years old and in her first year of nurse training at the Royal Perth Hospital. Aww. Maybe she saw fucking, what's his face She probably there. helped I him know. at some point. For the love. So she spent her days doing all the grunt work at the hospital, like making beds, changing bedpans, bleh. And her night studying for exams. Uh, She also had to live in the RPH nurses' quarters while doing her training. So she was quite excited to take a well-deserved break over the weekend. Her older sister was going to be gone for the weekend. So Alex was going to be able to escape the dorms and have some time to herself staying in her sister's apartment. Which I would welcome like no one's business. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, She was going to spend an afternoon with her younger sister who had a Borders Day leave from Perth College. I guess colleges in the 50s just didn't let you leave. You had to stay wow, in the dorm and get weird. a pass and everything. Like in high school? Yeah. Sorry, you can't leave It was now. the 50s. Truant. Maybe it was just women. 
Oh, yeah. Could be. So they also, they probably couldn't have their own bank accounts and stuff. So like, it's mm-hmm. like, no, you need to be accounted for at all times. <laughs> yeah. After she was going to meet with her sister in the afternoon and then meet up with some friends from home in the evening, uh, they were driving to Perth from Alex's hometown, which is about two hours away on Google Maps, probably longer in the 50s. When cars mm-hmm. in the yeah. Story, yeah. Uh, one of these friends also had a little crush on Alex and they had been close friends for a while. So Alice got to have her very nice, relaxing day, and by 12.45 a.m., she was left alone in her older sister's Nedlin's apartment. Like I said before, but Nedlin's was a wealthy suburb, and it was one of Crook's favorite haunts because there's a lot of good stuff in those houses. And it was also near a university, so there were lots of young girls to peep on. Oh. Alex locked up the apartment before going to bed, but she did leave a small window in the kitchen open, thinking it was too small and too high for anyone to get through. Uh, She underestimated Cook, who was a fairly small guy and, by this time, an experienced cat burglar. He made his way inside the apartment, took the money out of a purse he found, and went to go look in the bedroom to see if there were any other valuables in there. He must have made some sort of noise because Alex started to wake up. So Cook hit her over the head one time with his flashlight and fled the scene. Alex just fell back into bed and didn't fight back. And when her friends knocked on the door the next morning... They were shocked to see her appearance. She seemed dazed and hadn't dressed yet, and her face was covered in blood. And it wasn't until they had her look in the mirror that she realized that there was a large gash over her left eye. All she could remember was waking up around 3.30 a.m. and falling asleep again. Her friends took her to the hospital, where they found that she also had a fractured skull besides just the gash by her eye. Holy shit. She continued to seem dazed and ended up spending six weeks in the hospital, semi-conscious and confused. The blow to the head had caused a severe form of epilepsy, which medication could partially control, but she would never be fully cured and would carry this for the rest of her life. And she had to put aside her dream of being a nurse and return to her hometown to slowly recover at her parents' house. Oh, that's so sad. So sad. She's only 17. Oh my gosh. Now for a random detour into a historical tidbit. <laughs> Yay! That we know you love. Real quick too, tea is a slang term for dinner. Oh, oh so oh. the couple that was having tea oh. was eating dinner. Okay. I was like, they can't possibly be having caffeine that late at night, right? <laughs> if it's dark out. <laughs> so the arrival of the television changed Cook's prowling habits. Oh. And so by October 1959, the personal television had become available for the wealthier residents of Perth, meaning that they were more likely to stay home at night and watch their own television in peace as compared to the crowds of people who couldn't afford their own television and would drive down to the city with some chairs to watch a TV in a shop window. Whoa. Okay. Weird, but yeah. Cook welcomed the added challenge, though. More risk, more Ooh. reward. And he started sneaking through houses while the occupants were awake and watching TV. Feeling like Jeez. quite the clever boy when he didn't get caught. Wow, that's brave. He's just insane. But yeah, that too. Peppermint Grove was one of the wealthiest areas of Perth. And Gillian McPherson Brewer was one of the residents. She was a glamorous socialite and an heiress to the McRobertson Confectionery Fortune. Ooh. I know, sounds super fun. Confectionery Fortune. Willy Wonka. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but Wooly Walker's not very glamorous. No. The poor Oompa Loompas. Oh. <laughs> she had studied interior design before moving to Perth. 
And when she moved to Perth, her arrival made the social pages of the West Australian Ooh, in a somewhat wow. condescending blurb. Quote, Miss Brewer, who worked with the leading firm of Melbourne Architects, has designed interior furnishing for a bank, insurance building, and offices, and supervised renovations of many Melbourne homes. Always interested in art, Miss Brewer originally intended to be an architect, but thought that interior design was a more suitable occupation for a woman. <gasps> Rude. I mean, she thought that too, but it's like the standards Probably of the day. Probably because she got turned that. down for actually pursuing her yeah. dreams as a woman. Ugh. Too many men were filling up the space. Well, yeah, you can't take a man's spot. Especially they came back from no. the war. Okay, the war was over like 15 years ago, but. <laughs> <laughs> December 1959, Jillian had been living in Perth for 15 months and was quite happily settled. She was 22 years old, was engaged to be married in February and enjoyed an active social life. She also adored her silver-gray French poodle, whom she named Dior. Oh my god. I know, which had been a gift from her fiancé. She often threw parties at her house, but was completely unaware that sometimes those parties were being watched from an outsider in the shadows. Ew. Gross. On December 19th, 1959, Jillian had spent the day with her fiancé, and the couple returned to her house at 9pm, where they spent the rest of the evening together. This will have a lot of deja vu with Panina Berkman's last evening. This couple also made love, and the fiancé left at midnight, leaving Jillian sleeping in her bed naked. Hmm. But at least Jillian wasn't a divorcee, so this is slightly <laughs> less scandalous for Perth okay. when the news broke the following morning. Unfortunately, this sexual interaction wasn't purely between the two lovers. Cook had watched the whole thing through a gap in the curtains. No. It didn't seem that sex was the motive for most of Cook's murders and attacks, but on this particular night, something about the coupling inflamed him, and he returned to Jillian's neighborhood in the middle of the night. Before breaking into Jillian's home, though, he stopped to peruse a neighbor's garage, who had left the door open, and he took a hatchet. Oh. He then broke into Jillian's house and stood over her while she slept. He raised the hatchet and brought it down with all of his strength. No. The noise woke up the poodle, who started barking, but Cook, who was described as being very good with dogs, was able to quiet it, and not by killing it. Okay. Okay, From good. what I can see. I like how we're all relieved about the poodle, but like he brought the hatchet down on something, right? So. Yeah, it's not that. So he went back to Jillian and hacked into her body 12 to 13 more times with the hatchet. Oh my god. Jesus. To go into details, but suffice it to say, he was striking her with enough force that the axe head finally broke off from the handle. Jeez. It broke too soon for Cook's liking, but he found a pair of scissors in the house and came no, no, back no. to stab her at least five more times. Like she was like, probably already she was dead. dead by then. Why? Like, Ugh. and these are like the the. This seems like I mean, a nowadays. This is super personal, but mm-hmm. and nowadays but the scissors. <laughs> that's a penis. Yeah. yeah. Every time that every yeah. stab, and he watched them have sex earlier. Like this one is a very seems like a very sexual crime. Yeah, but like it's not like he's impotent. He's capable of he having can kids. Have kids. So why yeah. is he? And he had little girlfriends everywhere. Ugh. Yeah, he doesn't normally sexually assault any of his victims. All right, so Jillian's dead. Cook then headed to the kitchen, where he helped himself to a bottle of lemonade before returning to the bedroom to set the scene. He pulled the sheets up to her face, which hid most of the wounds on her body, but not the blood. And obviously there was blood spatter on the walls of the bedroom, too. Yeah, there had to be cast off everywhere. 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 And on him. Oh, my God. Mm -hmm. He then placed a pillow on her chest and placed her left arm on the pillow. 
The next day, Jillian's fiancé showed up at 9 a.m. to start a Sunday of golf together. He was surprised to find that the door was locked, as it was usually left open for him, and Dior, the poodle, was frantically barking and jumping up and down in the bedroom window. The fiancé had a key, so he was able to enter the house, where he found the staged gruesome scene. Police quickly came, but there wasn't much to go on. They did find the hatchet, but there were no fingerprints on it or anything in the house, including the lemonade. Because he was wearing his lady gloves. Lady Lady gloves on. Both the front and back doors had been locked, and the police could not determine the point of entry of the murderer. Coroner saw a lot of similarities between Jillian and Panina, and believed that these two murders had been committed by the same person 11 months apart. Wow, that's a little Nailed bit more it. intuition <laughs> than Canada. Yeah. Yeah, I'll say. They try. And this is a hard case, because he has a lot of different modes of attack. Yeah. Jillian was a big name in the Perth socialite scene, and so the spotlight was on police. Police began to question anyone who was picked up for a crime, especially those who were picked up for prowling and loitering. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this was December 19th, 1959. Just so happened that Cook was arrested on January 25th, 1960 for loitering. He was okay. well-versed enough in the system to know to quickly get rid of anything incriminating if he got caught. Lady gloves. Uh-huh. And any loot. <laughs> Because in that case, the worst the police could get him on was loitering with the intent to commit a crime, which had a maximum sentence of one month. Again, so he's, he's, he's he smart. Is quite smart. Yeah. Cook was quite known to the police at this point. They thought of him as a sexo and a snowdropper. <laughs> What? The second term referring to someone who stole women's panties and masturbated over them. Yeah, Yeah, that's that was my gross term I was coming to. Uh, Cook was questioned about Jillian's murder, but he didn't seem suspicious and they just sent him away for a month for loitering. Uh, so I just googled what does sexo mean in Australian and I got perv. I got porn. Oh! Porn. <laughs> Yay! You're just a sexo. Welcome to my world. Alright. So. I go back. I don't need to see that. <laughs> So Cook spent a month in jail for loitering, and he was released just a few days before the birth of his next daughter, child number six. Holy fuck! Wow. Cook was able to get a job with Jay Kranznestein and Company, where he delivered metal products, collected scrap metal, and got into workplace accidents. Oh, shit. On March 15, 1960, after only a few weeks back at work, he fell 12 feet, knocking himself unconscious and injuring his back, putting him back on workers' comp. Jesus Christ. The world's just trying so hard to, to kill put him. him They're trying so fucking hard. After three weeks, Cook was feeling good enough to prowl again. And he didn't have to go to work, so. <laughs> so Glennis Peak was a 20-year-old who lived in Bayswater, a suburb of Perth. And so she had to take the train to Perth for work or for meeting with friends. The train station was about one mile from her house. And sometimes she was lucky enough to get a lift from a Kranstein driver. Glennis liked this guy and thought he was a very kind man. He was polite and friendly and talked to Glennis about his family. He showed special concern for the future of his eldest son, who was mentally disabled. Glennis lived around the corner of Kranstein and company with her aunt and uncle, whom she considered her real parents. 
When Glennis was six, she was sent to a St. Joseph's orphanage after her mother was committed to the Heathcote Mental Hospital. Her mother had started her life as an astute businesswoman, but fell into a deep depression after two of her children met with tragic deaths. She turned to drinking for comfort, which put an incredible strain on her marriage. With her husband mm -hmm. divorcing her, her young daughter ending up in an orphanage, and herself in a mental institute. Well, her husband just fucked off, I guess, because I don't know why he didn't take care of Glennis. But her aunts and uncle took her in, despite the fact they were already raising five children, with her uncle saying that no niece of his was going to live in an orphanage. Well, that's sweet. I don't know why your father didn't feel the same, but she was an easy child to care for and quickly became independent. She also left school at 14 for a job at a shoe factory. She wanted to be able to provide for this family that, you know, took her in. Aww. She continued to live at home, surrounded by her large and caring family. On April 9th, 1960, Glennis was running to catch the 815 train to Perth to meet up with some friends to go dancing. She used to go dancing regularly, but it had been about eight months since she had last been because her family had purchased one of those newfangled televisions. Oh. <laughs> so, television's getting old. She's going to go dancing again. <laughs> she's like, this is too sedentary. I it's cannot. been eight months, guys. There's only like two channels. She was going to piss up, which is party. Oh, piss she was. Up. Piss, piss up. up. Mm -hmm. uh, Glennis was glad she went out and she had a great time dancing with friends and suitors. Wasn't a perfect night out, though, as she ran into an old boyfriend who had ghosted her after they had been going out Mom. for a few months. Glennis was still annoyed about it, and even more annoyed when she overheard him bragging to his friends about the whole affair. Ew. Glennis snapped yeah. and slapped him across the face. Good girl. Good. I'll get you for that, was his reply. Ew. Ew. She hit the train back to Bayswater and started walking home, probably stewing over this whole interaction with Brian, the ex, as I know I would be. Yeah. I'm a very good Brian, the ex, but this guy's an asshole. Mm -hmm. Yeah. As she was walking, a car drove by. A bogan. A bogan. And this broke her out of her reverie to wonder why someone was in the neighborhood so late. This mysterious car then made a U-turn and parked at the intersection of the street that Glennis was about to turn onto. Seemed weird, but Glennis was almost home, so she kept going. And then she heard the sound of a car accelerating towards her. <sighs> oh, no. At first she thought she would be fine as she was walking on the opposite side of the road, but then the car turned and sped straight at her. She made a desperate attempt to jump out of the way, but was clipped on her left hip, which threw her over the Ugh. car into a pile of broken glass and gravel. Oh. Uh, the car had to quickly swerve to avoid hitting a tree, and then went down the road a bit before making a U-turn so that the driver could come back and examine the scene. <gasps> But in the short time it took him to make that maneuver, his victim had disappeared. Good. Weird. Good girl. He was able to take her purse before he left the scene, forced to go on foot because the car that he had stolen had just run out of gas. Two minutes too late. Glennis lay on the edge of the road in complete shock, but was able to quickly gather her senses. That man had hit her deliberately, and the only reason mm -hmm. that he hadn't been able to hit her head on was because he had to swerve to avoid that tree. She saw the car drive on and knew that it would be back, because that was a dead-end street. She was in total agony and absolutely terrified, but she knew that she had to get out of there before the man came back. Luckily, she was very close to home and was able to drag herself through a timber yard to the back door of her house. Oh my god. Her family was playing cards in the kitchen and she was able to call out for her uncle before collapsing. Ooh. She came to just long enough to say, I've been hit by a car and he's broken my back before blacking out again. Oh my god. She was rushed to the hospital where it was found that her back wasn't broken. 
but this did put her lower on the triage list, and so she had to wait in pain for a long time for a doctor to be available. And finally, she was able to have the gravel and glass cleaned out of her face and eye. Um, no. I hate eye stuff. Ugh. I do too. That's, ooh. She would be left with scars on her face and the shitty gift of anxiety. And it didn't help when she eventually found out that the man who tried to kill her was the same nice man who would give her lifts to the train station. <gasps> no. It would be a long time before she went dancing again, and probably even yeah. longer for her to trust anybody. Oh, fuck right. yeah. The one thing we don't know is whether Cook had recognized Glennis that night, or if he'd just been cruising that neighborhood and just saw the figure of a woman in the darkness because everything's super dark remember yeah because if he had been friend kind of friends with her before then why would he opt to hit her unless she had offended him somehow well, I'll get into this he creeped with his co-workers too oh the police arrived and at first glennis was dazed and shocked and not able to give them very much clear information about the accident but when they came back the next afternoon glennis had recovered enough to insist that it wasn't an accident mm-hmm. it was a deliberate hit and run and she knew who did it it was that ghosting ex-boyfriend of hers who had threatened her that very <gasps> night oh poor brian he's like it wasn't me brian was quickly cleared uh he had a strong alibi and the abandoned car found near the scene wasn't his car didn't end up offering very much information because it turned out to have been stolen that night and the owner hadn't even realized it was missing until the police turned up at his house like <laughs> hey dude what'd you go for a joyride into this woman for what were you doing last night sleeping <laughs> Okay, about two months later, on March 13th, 1960, it was a Friday the 13th, Cook was out on the prowl again. That same night, 18-year-old Jill Connell, this is our second Jill, was working the closing shift at the London Court Milk Bar. I think it's an ice milk ice cream ice shop, cream? maybe. It was like right Russians. Yeah. Uh, she was a real go-getter and had lied about her age to get this job. But she wasn't super looking forward to closing and heading home based on an incident that had occurred the previous Friday night. So that previous Friday night when she had been locking up, she had noticed two men who were intently staring at her. Oh. That was unnerving mm. enough. But when she got off her That's bus gross. and walked the 15 minutes to her home, a car slowly followed behind her the whole time. Yeah, no. When she arrived in mm-hmm. front of her house, the driver of the car stopped and started talking to her. He told her his name was Arthur and started chatting with her. Jill wasn't sure what to do, so she defaulted to politeness. No, fuck politeness. She was Mm-mm. a baby and it's the 50s. I know, but And she's still. been, like, primed for politeness her whole life. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Uh, she told him that her father was about to come out, and when he she said that, Arthur sped away. But she was able to get the registration number of the vehicle as it sped out. Oh, good. Well, uh, I mean, if it's stolen, Good for it her, matter, though. Like, that's... You're, she tries. Yeah, you're doing something, you're trying. Right steps. Understandably, she was feeling a bit nervous about her commute home on this Friday night, but she was relieved that when she got off at her stop, there wasn't a sign. There wasn't any sign of the car. Uh, she started her walk home, and it sounds like a pretty creepy walk. So once again, there were no street lights, so it was extremely dark, and portions <sighs> of the road were lined with bushes, which would make creepy sounds in the night. Yes, and they on do. This, Especially if there's critters in those bushes. Australian yes. critters. And on this night in particular, she was already on edge and very alert to the sound of cars. But there would have been no way that she could have missed the car that roared past her. It was so close that she could feel the warmth of the engine. Ooh. 
She started to run, but she saw the car headed heading from the opposite direction and direct straight at her. She tried to run and jump a fence on the side of the road. She didn't make it, and the car hit her straight on, throwing her over the car. <sighs> Luckily, the side of the road was very sandy, and even if the driver had wanted to, the car was solidly stuck in the sand. So he jumped out and ran from the scene of the crime. Now they've got boot prints because of the sand? I don't think sand makes a very good print, though. Oh, if it's like dry sand, but I was thinking like wet sand leaves a really good print. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think it's, it was more dry. But it's dry. It's Australia. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting that he's got like so many different motives, right? So like these hit and runs are specific, but then he also goes in and he murders people in their homes in a, in a very intimate and violent way. But like yeah. these hit and runs are like... Opportunistic. Yeah. He's just out and about prowling, like, oh, there's one. They could be a power displacement, like using the car as sure. an extension of himself. Okay, that makes but sense. But it did make it really hard, next to impossible, for the police to actually link the hit and runs to any of the assaults in a home. Yeah, because it's like these seem like two very different MOs. The only thing they've linked so far is Panina Berkman and Jillian Brewer. The two indoor. Mm-hmm. Who were killed. Yeah. yeah. If you're the police people, you're like, hmm, how many hit and runs do we got now? They're adding up. Like, yeah, it's getting to be a large number. Ah, right. So Claude and Glennis Walsh lived nearby. And while Claude was brushing his teeth, he heard the sound of a faint moaning coming through the open window. The couple went out to investigate and found Jill about an hour after she had been hit. Oh. Claude ran to get help while Glennis stayed with Jill. Feeling a bit sick herself as one of Jill's legs had been mangled so badly that a leg bone was sticking out. Jill came to semi-consciousness where she just murmured over and over again, it hurts, it hurts. Hmm. Oh yeah. Jill was taken to the hospital and treated for a compound fracture of the right tibia and fibula, a deep cut on her forehead, and a bruised right shoulder. She was still fairly out of it and could only definitively tell the police her name and address. I'm not really sure why, especially since people had been being run down by cars on a regular basis in Perth by this time. Uh, But the police accused Jill of stealing the car with her boyfriend. And then they had an argument. Jill got out of the car and her boyfriend ran her down. Um, That really came out of fucking nowhere. Yeah. So, like, you're incompetent at your job and then this is the level, like, it's gotta be, wow. Uh, When she was lucid, she gave the police uh, the names of everyone she knew. All their alibis checked out. There were no fingerprints on the car, so the police were quickly out of leads. Jill had still had months of recovery in front of her. Four months later, the fracture wasn't healing correctly, and she was back in the hospital for a bone graft, and then in a cast for ten months. Oh my god. Oh my god. That happened to my dad when he, I mean, not for like a a broken bone or anything, but he had to get cadaver bone put in because his own dental surgery wasn't healing properly and Mm -hmm. the bone got like was just deteriorating faster than his mouth would heal. And so they took out the part of his bone that was like fading away and grafted on cadaver bone into his jaw. And then that had to heal before they could put the real posts in. Oh my God, what a disaster. Yeah. I think in this case, they took bone from her hip and yeah. plopped okay. it into her leg. With it, the it usually works better to use your own bone. Oh, yeah. yeah. Probably in the 50s, you probably couldn't even use a donor bone. Yeah. Probably not. Organ rejection and whatnot. Cook struck again within days. This time, Ugh. he was able to steal a big American muscle car and was really feeling himself. 
And perhaps he had learned from that last attack and wanted a car that wouldn't get stuck. <laughs> At the Queen's yeah. Park train station, three young girls got off. Georgina Pittman, 18. Maureen Rogers, 16. And Therese Sagami, 12. Maureen oh. and Therese were cousins, but they were going in the same direction of, as Georgina, so they decided to walk together for safety. Maureen was near the center plan. of the road, Georgina in the middle, and Therese on the side of the road. Uh, Georgina and Maureen were chatting about teenage things like boys and dancing, and Therese mm-hmm. wasn't interested in, in those topics of conversation, so she tread a little bit to the side of the other girls. And by now, you know how the story goes. Mm-hmm. A big American car sped by them, made a U-turn, and headed back toward them. To get more bang for his buck, he aimed at both Maureen and Georgina, who were side by side. He hit both of them, but Maureen bore the brunt of the hit. Maureen was left unmoving in the middle of the road. Georgina was severely concussed and was wandering around in circles, her shaken brain fixated on finding her shoes. Therese was unhurt, but terrified. Especially after she went over to Maureen's body and thought she was dead. She was able to run home. In a complete panic, waking her aunt, telling her Maureen was dead, and repeating, It was deliberate! It was deliberate! And once home, Therese refused to go back to the scene, yelling, You'll get killed! He's coming back! I don't want him to get you too! Yeah, can you imagine how terrified she was? Oh my god. Alright, so Therese's parents went back to the scene. But they were beaten by two patrolmen who were slowly driving around looking for trouble. They were specifically looking for a chicken thief. Chook thief. Uh, But they came across something far worse. An ambulance was called and the two girls were rushed to the Royal Perth Hospital. Maureen was actually still alive. This hospital sees a lot of action. Oh my god. But she was in bad shape and was rushed to the operating room. She also had a double fracture of her lower leg, a fractured left cheekbone, and abrasions and bruising all over. When she was wheeled to the recovery room, she was unrecognizable, completely bruised and swollen and in cast, to the point where her father didn't even recognize her. She was in the hospital for three weeks. Comparatively, Georgina was relatively unhurt. Uh, She had a cut on her scalp and a deeper cut on her back, but she was able to go home two days later. This is not to say that she got out of this completely unharmed, as both she and Therese suffered from persistent anxiety. Oh, yeah. Nightmares as well, so they couldn't even find peace and sleep. Georgina was taken to a small, quiet town where she could slowly learn how to relax, and Therese didn't sleep alone in her own room for a year. Oh. I would say, like, forever. (laughs) Never again. The next morning, for the first time, the newspapers suggested that the hit and runs were connected, with hmm. the headline of, Is a hit run maniac on the loose? After yes. like seven? Yeah. Fuck. Police concurred. Two days after the hit and run, Detective Sergeant Ron White wrote in his report, quote, I'm of the opinion that all three hit runs were committed by the one offender, but have no evidence to prove this. <laughs> I think one of the issues here is that Cook kept stealing different cars. Sure, Yeah. But Ron White, do you get the comedian Ron White? I don't know. You're not familiar? I'm not familiar. They call me Tater Salad. No. I have no idea. It's a, like <laughs> Southern humor. Okay. Okay. <laughs> All right. Got one more page for part one. On September 11th, 1960, Cook was arrested again, but he had thrown all the evidence away, and the only thing he could be charged with was loitering, which landed him in jail for a month. While he was in custody, he was never questioned about any of the hit and runs or other assaults. 
And to really hammer home how terrible his wife's life was going, she was left at home with six children under seven years of age, one of them only six months old. Wow. These close calls did not humble Cook in the least. He was out on the prowl immediately after getting out of jail, but his next major attack didn't occur until two years later on March 3rd, 1962. In the meantime, the Cook family had one more baby, bringing the total seven. seven. (sighs) Of all the people that we did not procreate. Ugh. I can't believe she's stuck around for this fucking long. I don't know where she's gonna go, though. But still. I don't know. I mean, I wonder if, like, how much this era is really, like, the Handmaid's Tale of, like, women have zero power and, like, you have almost nothing that you can do for yourself if you divorce. Yeah. Yeah. What are you going to do with them? Like, that's your job. Until at least Cook brought home money to support the family, unlike his father. But Yeah, yeah, but still. Still. still, It's not good at all. All right. And Melvin, 23, (sighs) also came from a family of seven children. And had just moved out and got an apartment of her own with her younger sister, 18-year-old Pauline, to help take the load off their parents. March 3rd was the first night that she would spend completely alone, as Pauline had gone off for the long weekend. Uh, Anne was nervous about it, and that wasn't help when she saw a man lingering under a streetlight when she was dropped off for the weekend. But with the mix of anxiety and nerves, Anne forgot to lock her back door. No! No, no, no. able to easily enter the house around 4.45 a.m. So he peeped on her for a while then. Ah, uh, yeah, I guess he did peep on her for a while. He cased the house, found that Anne was alone, and decided that he would like to rape an unconscious girl. So this got, this is what he thinks about raping now. He's, yeah, escalating. He found a towel, wrapped it around her neck, being careful to bring her to unconsciousness, but not further. He then took off her pajama pants, but was distracted by the sound on a porch. He went to go investigate, and it turned out to be a cat. Very good boy. Good boy. And when Cook got back to the bedroom, Anne was beginning to regain consciousness. Uh, he quickly tied her left hand to the bedpost with a pair of her own stockings, and tied in the towel around her neck for a second time. But it was a noisy night, so he had to go investigate a new sound. And when he got back to the bedroom, Anne was conscious again, ripping the towel off her neck with her free hand and starting to scream. So Cook scampered. Oh, okay. he left. Okay. In a truly horrifying turn of events, Anna had been dreaming of being suffocated. <gasps> Only to find that, like, there's actually a towel around her neck. She didn't realize she was actually being suffocated until she saw Cook enter her room for the second time, which is <gasps> when she started screaming. Yeah. <laughs> she was able to free herself and saw that her sister's bed was empty. And in that moment of extreme stress, she forgot that her sister had left for the weekend and assumed that the man had kidnapped her. So in a real badass move, she ran outside after the man, screaming that she would get him and kill him. <gasps> Sweet. The screaming alerted her neighbors, Terrence and Geraldine Merchant. They went to investigate and found Anne, naked below the waist, with something around her neck, blood dribbling from her mouth and staggering around the yard. First they thought she was drunk. It's well, a lot, to be fair. but it's, it's, yeah. I've heard Australians could really drink. But <laughs> Anne was able to shout out that there had been a prowler, so Tara's ran the call the cops, while Geraldine, a nurse, tended to Anne. That's nice. For their troubles. Several days later, the merchant's car was found covered in women's panties. The merchants decided to move away. Yeah. Fuck yeah. They're like, fuck you. We're gone. This is enough here. Anne was so unrecognizable that when her father arrived, he ran straight past her. 
not able to tell that the girl with the bloodshot eyes and strangulation marks around her neck was his daughter. Like Georgina, um, she was fucked up. <laughs> like Georgina, Anne was fairly unhurt physically, but really struggling mentally. Yeah, Ooh. for sure. Both Anne and her sister moved back in with their parents, and Anne didn't leave the house for a year, except to go to mass with her family. She was also the only victim to receive mysterious phone calls. Ooh. Uh, so, so maybe no, it's a night caller. No, no, no. I don't, but this I never really figured out what this was, but the caller would just hang up as soon as the phone was answered. Oh, okay. It's nothing like gross heavy no. or whatever. Two years later, Anne moved to New Zealand. Yeah. I hear they're nicer a there. A whole new country, please. <laughs> One more attack. After a nice family Christmas, he does like Christmas, Cook couldn't control his urges. They went back on the prowl on December 29th, 1963. He creeped along until he found a young woman sleeping in the front sleepout as it was hot AF. Because it was upside down land. Yes. Because <laughs> it's hot on Christmas there. They call it Chrissy. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. After Ooh. a nice family Chrissy. Yeah. Um, This... Woman had pushed a chair up under the doorknob, but Cook was able to reach through a window and move the chair. He snooped around looking for money and other valuables before coming back to stand over the young woman. Even in sleep, Peggy Flurry, 25, must have felt the hairs in the back of her neck stand up because she woke up, saw a man standing over her, and started screaming. The man yeah. shone his flashlight in her eyes to blind her, and to stop the screaming, he punched her in the face. But she didn't stop screaming, so the man ran no. away. The screaming woke her parents, who rushed into the sleepout and found Peggy with her eye looking like it had been gouged out. Uh. Her eye was so badly damaged that she needed an operation. Aww. When she was calm enough, she was able to talk to the police, and the police were able to confirm that the man had stolen her money as well. Tad insult to injury. Mm-hmm. And that's where we should stop this. <laughs> Come Jeez. back later, guys. Okay, so let's close this out super quick because otherwise I might probably pee pee in my pants. <laughs> to be continued. Join us next time. Yes. On this cliffhanger. There's a lot more to come, folks. This episode is going to air on March 7th. So I would like to wish a happy birthday to my daughter. Ah. Sassy and sweet. And this is the year of pink. So we're super excited. Nice. Oh boy. And then as far as astrology, we've got on Wednesday, March 9th, Mercury is entering Pisces. So Mercury is our communication. And it's really, it's it's the start of the time to think with our hearts. Mm. And our communication starts to become more empathetic and creative. Maybe a little impractical, but... Hey, Pisces. Tis the season of Pisces. And then on Sunday, March 13th, the sun in Pisces... Pisces will be conjunct with Neptune in Pisces. So if you listened to last week's episode, conjunct just means that the planets are in the same sign. And so this Sunday is going to be a super lazy Sunday. Please, please. thank God. It's going to be a good day to just chillax, maybe read a book or accidentally read a book like Hannah does sometimes. I'll have to start writing my next script by then. Right. And then maybe watch a movie or indulge in some creative hobbies. So it should be a good, nice, relaxing day. And then, of course, to close out, close out, we would love to hear from you. I'm tired of getting uh, insurance quotes and things like that. 
So please reach out. We really do want to interact with you guys. We're on Twitter at True Trine, on Instagram at True Crime Trine, Facebook TCT Podcast. You can email us directly at truecrimetrine at gmail.com. And then check out our website, www.truecrimetrine.com. Oh, yeah. Like with all these weird Australian slang words that we're learning. Yeah. If oh, yeah. Share like your favorite weird ass slang word or phrase. That'd be so Any cool. Australian wants to say holla. That's not Australian, but you know. Ha- I, good day. Good day, mate, is what I was trying good to day. think good of. Day. I did find one slang that means loopy or kind of crazy, which is a few kangaroos loose in the top paddock. <laughs> <laughs> love it. And I really loved that one. But yeah, so join us next week. We will have the continuation of Eric Edgar Cook. Bye. Booyah. Bye. Music for our podcast was handcrafted by the talented and creative minds of Mike Warren and Pete Ortega. Our artwork was imagined and skillfully designed by the lovely Sarah Guest. As for production, well, they call me post-production. Show notes are available upon request. Just email truecrimetrine at gmail.com. Join us again next week for another tantalizing episode.